On chapter 17, I want you to go down to verse number 9. <clears throat> if you weren't with us last week, we had a great voters party. Uh, we handed out hats and whistles, and we had a, had a celebration. And um, then we, we, end, we actually finished the voters meeting before the, the end of the time. So we got to do just a little bit. I'm going to recap that. Beginning with verse number 9, remember where we're at. We're at the end of Revelation. So we have these four scenes that are getting kind of set in front of John, all of them have to do with the same thing, all right? Remember how Revelation is cyclical, just kind of goes around the same subject, around the same subject. So what's the subject? Well, we're coming to the very end of time. And so we're going to see the destruction of what we call the, the dragon's henchmen or beasts, right? There's two of them. We know that, that today Satan loves to act through the beast of the political systems of this world. Okay, uh, have no question about that. Look at history, study history. You'll see it over and over again. There is a, you would look at it and say, well, it seems like there's a political bias against Christianity. Where did that come from? Well, it, it didn't just happen. It, it shouldn't surprise us. There is a war going on, right? It's a spiritual war. What does the dragon like to do? Take those who have been placed into positions of authority by God and use them as puppets to come against, against Christian, Christianity. We've seen this in history time and time and time and time again. So what John is seeing is there's going to be the destruction of those, those political agencies that have, uh, since, since the time of Christ, come against Jesus and his, his cause. Second, the second beast is the religious beast. And uh, we'll see the destruction of the religious beast as well. Of the two, the one that scares me the most is the religious beast. And, and quite often, uh, as Revelation tells us, the religious beast is actually doing what? Serving the political beast, is, is saying to people, this is good, let's support this, and let's, it's, it's okay what the, the political system is doing. We're seeing that in America right now in a huge, huge way. When you have churches that are saying, yes, the, to, to change the definition of marriage is good. It's right. No, it is not right. And no, it is not good. But you have that. And so you can see Revelation just being played out right, right in front of us. Okay? Scene number two, the song of victory. Well, chapter 17 and 18, we're still in this, this destruction of the, the henchmen and his agencies. But then we'll get to the song of victory before we see the overthrow of the dragon himself. And then finally comes the, the restoration and new earth. Okay? So, to the political beast, if you go to verse number 9, you, you have had this scene that's being played out before John's eyes. He's asking the question, what, what am I seeing? And this angel comes, right, and says, well, I'll tell you what you're seeing. And verse number nine, says, this calls for a mind of, of wisdom. The seven heads that you, you saw on this, this beast, right, are the seven mountains upon which the woman is seated. Okay. So last week we talked about that. The seven, the seven mountains would be the seven hills of what? Of Rome. Okay. So if I'm hearing this for the first time, and I'm the member of a church in Pergamum or Ephesus or um, Theatira, right? If I'm part of the, the body of Jesus at the time that these words are first being spoken, the minute I hear that, the seven heads are seven hills, I immediately know, that's Rome. That's Rome. That's what we're talking about. So we have these Roman rulers who are what? Going to set themselves against Christianity. Okay. 
he says they they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, one is the other has not yet come, and when he does, he must remain for a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. So, as far as these seven hills, he says they're they're also rulers, right, kings. And what's happened over the years is you have historians that go back and they study the history of Rome. And they actually try to designate who were those seven and then an eighth that came against Christianity. Okay? And you get a variety of theories. You know? So you have, you know, this is one, one interpretation. You have Galba, Otho, Vitellius. All three of them, if you just track these first three, you know, you're, you're, you're after the, the, the Caesars, right? And so you're entering into a family of, of rulers over Rome that increasingly become more uh, harsh relative to uh, the, the enactment of legislation against Christianity, okay? Christianity, if you, if you look, look at the book of Acts and you kind of track the history of Christianity, Christianity begins as kind of a mystery inside of Rome. Romans don't know what it is. They, they just don't get it. Okay. Um, they think it's something to do with Judaism until the Jews make it very clear, we're not that. And we want that thing destroyed. Okay. So in Rome, you have two types of religion. Really three. The first being your personal religion. It's called superstitio. That would be the term we would use if we were Romans. And I might say to you, what is your superstitio? Well, today our, our English word is, what's your superstition, right? And the Romans kind of treated it that way. You know, what, what do you believe? You're welcome and you're, you're um, privileged to believe whatever you want to believe. It uh, doesn't matter to us as Romans, okay? It's one of the things that set Rome apart from previous civilizations was their leniency. We're going to be the melting pot. So Rome could defeat country after country after country, bring the citizens into Rome. And what they knew is if we take their religion away, what will they do? They'll rebel. You know, we've seen it happen. Happened to the Persians. Happened to the Babylonians. We're not going to do that. We won't take their religion away. You're welcome to come into Rome, superstitio, believe whatever you want to believe, as long as what you believe does not create what? Issues for Rome. You must still come underneath the legislative rule of the emperor, okay? So beginning with, with, with Galba and moving forward, you start to have this sense in which the, the, the government of Rome is getting the idea that, well, there's this one superstitio out there called the way. Remember, that's what Christianity was originally called. And the way seems to be getting in the way of our ability to have peace in these regions because wherever the way goes, the Jews get upset, they get into these clashes, they create havoc for our citizens. We can't have that in Rome. So, if you're a part of the way, the Roman government begins to question your legitimacy. Okay? The Jews, it's a superstitio, but it is a licit superstitio. So by the time we're reading these scriptures, Jews are considered by the Romans to be a legal religion. It's, it's legal for you to practice your religion as Jews. 
Okay? The Jews are saying, but not this cult called the way. That thing is a cult, and it needs to be put down. And so you, you start to get into these, this era where now Christianity becomes a religion, what? Illicita. Illicit. It's no longer, you cannot practice Christianity. Not legal anymore. And so we can now enact legislation against it or take action against you. And you also have, by the time you get to Vespian, Titus, Domitian, Nerva, now these Roman emperors actually set themselves up as gods so that you have the combination of the two beasts. We're, we're gods and we're political rulers. Okay? So that, that's, that's really what a lot of historians try to do is that they'll read, okay, when you get into Rome, you have the seven hills, you have the seven kings, an eighth that comes. Who are those? Well, we know that it's, it's really under, under people like Caligula, Nero, Titus, Domitian. I mean, Titus is the guy who, who said, you know what, I think we ought to do away with all this stuff, tore down the temple, right, 70 A.D. And these people said, we're going to just get rid of this, this blight upon Rome called Christianity, okay? So what do we do? I mean, how is it helpful for us to read this? Well, when you read it, you, again, the, 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 the very first words in verse number nine to me stand out. This calls for a mind of wisdom. What, what, what the Spirit is saying to us is, be wise, look at history. Look at what's happened. Look at what happened in Rome. And recognize that there's a greater power at work than these physical human emperors. There's a dragon at work who works through these agencies. And will that continue? Will that continue? Well, that's the second half of this. Absolutely it'll continue. T take a look at the next one, verse 12. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Okay. So what he's saying is you can now look back on Rome. We can. And we see what happens. These political rulers rise up and they, they enact legislation that comes against the Lamb, against Christianity and Christ. He's saying, well, guess what? There's going to come a time are we living in it today, when there will be 10 kings? Okay. Now, is it specifically 10? Remember that in both cases, 7, 8, 10, all of this is numerology and is meant to be understood that way. So is it meant to just be, well, these specific 10? No. Why? Well, because the number 10 is what? It's Yahweh's number. It's the perfect number. What he's saying is there will be the number, a number of kings equal to what God has already designated. A number of political rulers equal to however many God has designated. He's, he is in control here. God is. You may not think so. You may look at what's going on in the world and be like, well, where is God? God, God must be missing all this. No, he is not missing all of it. So the perfect number of rulers who will come and they will receive authority I think this is, it's, it's interesting to me the way that this is, is written. They have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings. Okay? Who gives them that authority? Well, interestingly enough, two different groups of people do. First of all, 
God. Who has created the political system? So if I came over here and said, let's pick out Nero. Because everybody recognizes Nero, who was a pretty bad guy, right? Who gave Nero authority? Well, interestingly enough, we have to say as Christians, God establishes political offices. They're under his authority. Nothing happens on planet Earth outside of God's authority. Okay? So, you're, so we, would, we would on one hand say, well, I guess God established that office. Who put Nero into it? Well, in, in Rome, you didn't just go get elected. I mean, you didn't have like Republican debates and Democratic debates, and now we're going to have, have a, a vote. Emperors were, were really, what? They became rulers typically through bloodline or through doing what? Killing the bloodline previous to them. They took power themselves, okay? And so, so we would say, well, they actually, in some senses, put themselves into this position. True, but still under God's authority, all right? So when this says you have these 10 kings that are to come who will receive authority, they're political rulers who, who really ultimately receive their authority under Jesus Christ. You, you're in your office of, of a political ruler, only under the authority of God. If God wanted to end that today, boom, he ends it today. You're done. Okay? So think about this. While the, while the dragon is trying to manipulate political rulers, it's not like God is, is just sitting on the sidelines going, whoops, boy, I blew it. I shouldn't have gotten that. That guy should never have been in there. Not like that at all. God uses people even like Nero. He uses them for his purposes. Think about that. Even during a time when Nero, Caligula, Vespian, Titus are killing Christians, and the Christians are all saying, God, why would you let this happen? God says, because I, God, chose to let it happen. And I will bring good out of it. And in fact, during the time of persecution, guess what the Christian church did? Grew like never before. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you, but I, I can still remember the first time in, in my ministry that I got into a prayer group with a group of, of pastors. Um, I had been invited to come into this prayer group. The, the leader of it was a Pentecostal pastor who, <clears throat> almost like night and day opposite of Lutherans, right? I had me, he's like, hallelujah, brother, hallelujah, brother. And I'd be like, whoa. And we're going to pray. So we're, oh, okay, we'll, we'll, we're going to pray. I remember the first prayer group we got into, and this guy, this pastor, it's just a group of us in Lincoln, different, past, different churches. And he says, I think that we ought to consider praying for persecution in America. I remember thinking, do you know what you just said? Persecution is not good. Persecution is bad. No, he said, I think we ought to actually consider praying for persecution in America. Like, why? Why would you do that? Look at history. Throughout all of the ages, when has the church of Jesus Christ risen up and become the strongest? Under persecution. Does God use even evil rulers for his purposes? Absolutely, yes. Does he rejoice over the death? No. No. 
But remember, for God, death is an issue of what? Death is one of his greatest gifts to us. We look at it as horrible. We're like, oh my gosh, God, you're letting these people get killed. God says, well, yeah, yes, I, I gave you death. That's my gift to you. It's what releases you from this world. You, trust me, you don't want to live in this world. If I give you that gift of death, you'll be released from it. Our minds are the minds that don't get it. God's mind is very clear about what he's doing. War going on. I want to bring people to faith so that when death takes place, they're released from this world and they'll be with me in the new world forever. It's a good thing, right? We're the ones that get scared, hold on, try to push back, fight back. God's going, don't worry about this. I have this. Even under a Nero and a Caligula. Okay, so there are 10 kings who are to come who will receive authority for one hour. Okay, so... When you say for one hour, you're pointing to, to, to two things. You're saying, in essence, that these, these rulers that are yet to come will, will actually be dominant and have their authority under God for a very short period of history leading up to and inclusive of what we have been calling the half a time, right? So what do you do with that? Again, you can buy book after book after book after book. You can read author after author after author who do the same thing with these 10 kings as they do with the rulers of Rome. Only this time they look forward, all right? And they try to project who will these 10 kings be. And I have had, I mean, I have had people, you know, come to my office I remember one guy coming to my office with this book a guy had written, you know, saying to me, Pastor Luke, the, the end of the world is going to come in 2000 and whatever it was, you know, eight, you know. And I'm like, well, why do you say that? Well, because it's right here. It's in this book. And you open up the book and you start reading it. And the author has said, well, Russia is going to align with Asia and there's going to be World War III and America is going to get destroyed. I mean, that's what authors do with this stuff. Okay. Do I discourage you from reading those kinds of books? Have at it. Read as many of them as you want. Some of them are actually kind of funny. I mean, especially the ones, especially the ones that predicted that the end of the world would come in 2008. They're real, no, you can get them on eBay really cheap. Those are really inexpensive <laughs> books. <laughs> the author's giving them away. Signed copies, right? Well, why? Because it isn't the point, okay? I sometimes find it fun to read an author who says, look at what's going on right now. You have Russia, and what, what's Russia doing in Syria? Well, are they, they're supposed to, they're saying we're fighting against ISIS, but are they? Oh, no, they're not fighting against ISIS. They're actually arming ISIS. And so there's an, an allegiance that's actually going on. And, and that's what the Bible's talking about, this allegiance. Well, is it or isn't it? For, for you and I as Christians, please hear this. You can spend as much time as you want to trying to figure all that out. God bless you. Okay? It's not the point. The point of it is there are going to be political entities that do receive authority from God and, and there will be a measure in which they do what? Come against Christianity. They will come against Christianity. That's the point of it. What, what we're being told here is, John, don't be surprised by that. Don't be afraid of that. 
Don't say to yourself, oh my gosh, we've got to stop that because you can't stop it. This is what God has already orchestrated. From the, just think about this God that we follow. From the moment before he said, let there be light. Question for you. Does he know in that moment that the creature that he creates will sin against him and cost him his own son? Yes, he does. And he makes them anyway. The first sign of grace in the Bible, people always say, is after the sin of Adam and Eve, God comes to the garden and covers them. I'm like, nope. The first sign of grace is creation itself. A God who creates despite the fact that I know the creation, the creation that I make will cost me my son. That's the love of God for you and for me. Creates us. From before that first moment, does God know the very end? The exact number of people that will be on new earth with him. Absolutely yes. All that will happen in history. Under his authority. Absolutely. So what we're being told is, buy as many books as you want, guys. Describe the alliances and the wars and all that stuff. Good luck. Because let me tell you what the half a time is. It's gonna, it's gonna, you're going to reach this point in time where everything that you think of as normal, the normal way that politics work, the normal way economics work, the normal way, all of that, boom, gone in that half a time. Leading up to that half a time, 10, i.e. the perfect number of rulers, will come and go, and they will come against Jesus Christ. That's the point, is church know this that there is a war going on and that political machinery will be used against you, okay? For me, watching, especially watching some of my, my younger uh, contemporaries that are coming into ministry, I look at the United States and I, I will just flat out say to people, okay, get ready for a day and age where um, what we have here today, this thing called a tax exemption. We still have that, don't we? Did we sign our, our thing? Mike, are you sure? Okay, he says we have that. That's good. But see how, see how that gets in your head? We think, oh, we got to have that. Um, would this be crazy to pray for? There's going to come a day, I think, that's going to get taken away. I, I really do from places and churches that refuse to do what? Come under the beast. You don't want to do this, you lose that. Okay. Now, do I know that for a fact? Absolutely not, I don't. Do I believe that's going to come? Sure I do. Why would I say to churches, um, probably a good idea to get out of debt. Why would I say that? Because when that day comes, it would be really good to say, okay, um, would it affect, quote unquote, giving in the church if your tax exempt was taken away? Here's my prayer, is that it would affect it mightily, that the church would raise up and we would finally, once and for all, actually start doing what God called us to do, start tithing. That's what I would pray for. Because when does the church become the strongest? when it's under persecution. And I would love to see that day come when the government says, nope, nope you, didn't, you won't do this, that. Because then it's so clear to people, they can't miss it. 
You have to see it. You have to say, oh my goodness, this is an outright battle against us. So, is it coming? I believe so. All right? Here, here's why I believe that. Just look at, look at verse number 13. You really start to see this. It says, these, i.e. these kings, this political system of the world, multinational, right, are of one mind. They are of one mind, and they hand over their power to the authority of the beast, okay? So there's a sense in which, as you get into this last hour, from nation to nation to nation to nation to nation, there's a one-mindedness that has to do with coming against Christianity. Now, they may come out against Christianity in different ways, but that's their one-mindedness, is that thing right there, the Christians, there's our problem, okay? Today, uh, our, our uh, Islamic countries would have no problem whatsoever saying, yes, we need to come against that thing called Christianity. That's a problem for us. Okay? And they have, have every intention of coming against Christianity. Okay? You have atheistic countries that look really nice on the outside. Okay? You know, one, one, of the, one of the guys that we're helping support in, in, in mission work is, is a fellow, you know, worked, worked together side by side with me in Dallas, went, went into Asia under the government of Asia. And uh, under the government, here we're going to have this, this church. And the government is trying to look nice on the outside while it keeps its thumb absolutely on Christianity. Absolutely on Christianity on the, outside, on the inside. Okay? So there's a one-mindedness as they hand their authority over to the beast. They give themselves over to the beast. Verse 14, they, here's the important words, will make war on the lamb. Here's the good news. The lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords, king of kings, and those with him are, okay, just stop for a minute and think about that. He is Lord of lords. He is king of kings. He is fully in control. This war that's been going on will come to an end. And who will, who will overcome? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, will overcome. Together with those who are, and look at these three words, called, chosen, faithful. Along with him are those who are called, chosen, faithful. Okay? What is he talking about? He's talking about those who have been called by God, out from the world, Chosen by him to belong to him and remain what? Faithful to the very end. Okay. Um, I always have Christians ask me, well, do you think in, the, in these last times that, that there will be Christians who lose their faith? And I like to say it a little bit differently. I think, I think when you think of losing something, it's typically almost passive on your part, right? I mean, there's a passivity to it. I lost my sunglasses. <laughs> Where are my sunglasses? I lost my phone, cell phone, right? Lose your cell phone, you lose your mind, right? I mean, they're, they're just gone, okay? Well, there's a somewhat of a passive, I, I forgot it, I dropped it, I didn't, I didn't pick it up, okay? 
when it comes to faith, faith, faith isn't like that. You don't just kind of like, whoops, I just, I, 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 just, I just lost it. No. There's not just a passivity to it. Okay? There's an activity to it. Can I lose my faith? Yes, I can lose my faith. I actively choose to resist the work of the Spirit of God in me over and over and over again. And the more times I do that, the harder and harder and harder my heart becomes. And I still contend that there are many who lose their faith, who actually give up their faith, give away their faith, put down their faith, and who literally still believe, nope, I'm a believer. And I say to them, no, 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 no. Be careful of this, that you can, if you just continuously push the Spirit of God away, get to a place where you, you give your faith away, that your true following of Jesus Christ is not there. You're not following him. You're following someone else. So, so what he's saying is, when you come to the end, you've got those who are called, chosen, and faithful beside him. So the angel concludes this by saying, John, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are people and multitudes and nations and languages, people from all over this globe. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. This is the most interesting part of this whole section. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now look at verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. God puts it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. <clears throat> Again, this just shows you where God is at in this whole picture. Not passively sitting there watching going, whoops, oops, terrible, bad. Nope, God's orchestrating the whole thing. I'm orchestrating, I'm putting it into your heart to turn it, your hardened hearts to turn your power over uh, to the beast until my words are fulfilled. <clears throat> he says, the woman that you saw is the great city, the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. And so in this day and age, when you're reading it, that great city is the city of Rome. Today, it wouldn't be, this, it wouldn't be Rome, right? Uh, over the course of history, the great city are those great political systems that raise up, that uh, entice the kings of the world to join them, and in the effort of coming after what we want and what we desire, end up then pushing away the lamb and what he's trying to do. Okay? All right. Let's flip over for just a minute. We have time to do this to the, to the uh, 18th chapter. When you get to the, to the end of chapter 17... If you put yourself in John's shoes, John is taking all of this in at one time. And so there's this almost this moment as chapter 18 begins where, where John is going, whoa, okay, um, what you're talking about is the sweeping hand of history that takes us to the very end. <clears throat> when chapter 18 begins, he's going to take us to the end with the fall, again, of these agencies that have been under the control of the beast. That's described as the fall of Babylon. All right? Take a look at this. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. The earth was made bright by his glory, and he called out with a 
Iscarus voice. Okay? Most of your translations will say he called out with a mighty voice. Okay? I'm saying it a little bit differently because I want you to hear it. He called out with an Iscarus voice. Okay? The word for mighty is not used often in the Bible. And that's what Iscarus means. Sometimes you read this and you think, well, this, this angel is coming in and he's got a loud voice. Oh, we're just kind of, you know, kind of one of those Earl Jones, you know, Star War, Luke, I am your father voice. No. Iscarus means mighty because it's what? Authoritative. And so when I read that, the way I read it is this angel calls out with an authoritative voice, the voice that speaks with God's authority. In other words, as John hears him, he recognizes immediately what this angel says isn't just belong to the angel. It belongs to God himself, right? Okay. So what does he call out? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Okay? What we're going to look at here is caught up in two words placed side by side. Fallen, fallen. God is going to bring about the utter destruction of Babylon, that political system that for now for years and years has come against Christianity. <clears throat> I always think of it this way. Uh, when, my kid, when my kids were little, you know, I'd get to babysit them every once in a while. And would tell me, don't do anything dumb. You know, just, just watch them. So you got two little kids, you're like, you know, mom says be calm. Let's watch a movie, you know. What, what harm could a movie done? Terminator. <laughs> Seemed good to me at the time. I don't know. But uh, Anne didn't seem to think so when she came home. That's, that's not the movie for the kids to watch. What? Terminator. Remember Terminator? You, you kill him and he keeps coming. You kill him and he keeps coming. Then finally he's dead. Okay? That's what we're talking about. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, who becomes a haunt for every unclean spirit, bird, and detestable beast. Okay, I think about this. On Golgotha, at Golgotha, why did they put why did they put those crosses at Golgotha? Well, it's outside of the city, right? Which prophetically we know that the Messiah dies outside of the city. But where outside of the city? What is Golgotha? It's the dump. So, um, why would you put crosses by a dump? A, it stinks. B, what do dumps draw? Birds, insects. So the Romans figured out that one of the best ways to deter crime is crucifixion. Okay. Because previous to, to crucifixion, what did they do? I mean, they had a number of different things, but impalement was pretty popular. 
With impalement, you just take a person and go, and they're dead that fast. Okay. With crucifixion, they're alive, and they're sitting on that cross. And you've got a dump sitting there, and you've got birds that come and start pecking on you, sometimes while you're alive, trying to peck your eye out and eat it. Now, for people walking along, seeing that, that becomes, somehow becomes a deterrent for crime. <laughs> somehow people think, that does not look very good to me, right? It stinks. There's, okay, so now you have God doing this. You will become the place where the birds come and the beasts come. You will be detestable to the world. You that have for all of these years come against me, that for all of these years have been the place of power and prestige, economics, you will fall hard and people will see that you are desolate. You have nothing to offer them. Here's my prediction. Half a time. Political systems fall. All of them. What people finally realize is there is no answer in the political system. They're desolate. They're like a dead body and a bird's pecked out its eyes. There's nothing left of it. And I think in the half of time, we will see that, the fall of political systems in such a way that there is, there is no hope left in them. We see their desolation. Let's close there. Let's close there.